0: Uh, Welcome to our 18th of 33 sessions, I think, we will have, formal in-class sessions. Should I remind you of that? We're past the midway point. You guys are still going strong. Haven't hit the backstretch yet, but uh, I think we're doing well. Uh, So welcome to our 18th session. And let me give a, a brief introduction to our speaker today. Uh, He is the George Henry Davis, class of 1986, professor of history at Princeton University, where I believe he's been teaching since 1962. Uh, Yeah, he is what the Sopranos would call a made man. (laughs) Never seen the show, but I think that term is appropriate. Uh, Born in North Dakota for our North Dakota contingent, wherever you are. We've got a couple there. Oh, very good. But raised in? Minnesota. 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 Wow. I'll let you guys give the rest of this intro. Okay, what's the next thing I'm going to say? Gee, he received his Ph.D. from? Aha, gotcha. Johns Hopkins uh, Hopkins University, where he studied with the great C. Van Woodward. His early scholarship dealt not so much with uh, the Civil War directly, but with uh, the abolitionists. And he's published several uh, books uh, on that topic. Uh, He has written, as you all well know, way too many books for me to recount uh, today. But, of course, he is most well-known for his uh, Pulitzer Prize winning history of the Civil War entitled Battle Cry of Freedom. That was published in 1988, still going strong. Uh, I want to cite a passage that's one of my favorite from uh, the entire book. And it deals with the surrender of Lee uh, at Appomattox. This is on page 849 for anybody who cares to look at it. But when I first read this book, it was the one where I had to take out a different pen. Actually, I took out a highlighter and just just beautiful. I'd never uh, heard of this passage. Uh, Grant was there, uh, of course, and he had an aide, a military secretary by the name of Eli Parker, who was a Seneca Indian. And Lee, after uh, the surrender terms uh, were submitted, he stared a moment at Do- Parker's dark features and said, I'm glad to see one real American here. Parker responded, We are all Americans. This- Wonderful. It would have been a great way to even end uh, the book if it wasn't uh, meant to c- cover everything in the Civil War. In uh, 2000, well actually prior to 2000, uh, ten years after this book was published, uh, he won the prestigious Lincoln Prize for his book, For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. And more recently, in 2000, he delivered a prestigious Jefferson Lecture at the Kennedy Center the highest honor that the federal government bestows for distinguished intellectual and public achievement in the humanities. The title of his talk at that time was For a Vast Future Also, Lincoln and the Millennium, appropriate for a 2000 uh, address. It's safe to say that uh, next to Ken Burns' PBS series on the Civil War, no man is more responsible, in my opinion, for the resurgence of popular interest in our nation's greatest conflict, than this afternoon speaker, and uh, to our honor and privilege, our tour guide today. Uh, please welcome Professor James McPherson.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Lucas. And uh, I'm sure that all of you have been enjoying the opportunity to study uh, with him and also with the other uh, guests uh, scholars and lectures that you've had. I know that in Philadelphia, one of the people who spoke to you is my good friend and graduate school classmate back at Johns Hopkins in those ancient days of uh, the 19th, late 1950s and early 1960s, David Hackett Fisher, uh, with whom I'm also co-editor of a series called "Pivotal Moments in American History. I, I know that you uh, have been studying with Ellen Gelso, the uh 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates, and the reading that I set for you to do is on the causes of the Civil War. So uh, the question I had in mind was, what could I talk to you today about that would fit with that and would also provide some kind of a segue into uh, our discussion uh, of the readings. And I came up with the idea of talking to you about uh, the United States at mid-century. That's the mid-19th century. The United States as it existed in the 1850s and how it got that way over the previous half century. What were the uh, social and economic and cultural and political developments uh, of that period that created the kind of society that went to war in 1861? And I've given this lecture a somewhat uh, melodramatic title, which you can (laughs) discount if you want to. Uh, prelude to Armageddon, uh, America on the Eve of the Civil War. And let me start out by talking about what I see as the single most important um, social and, and cultural theme in 19th century America, and that is the theme of growth. Now, We continue as a society to be preoccupied with the question of growth. Every month the government comes out with all kinds of statistics on the um, growth of the economy, uh, on the growth of population, uh, on all kinds of statistical things that have to do with growth and as you well know if you read the business pages of the newspaper if uh, the growth uh, of the per capita growth of the American economy or even the over- overall growth of the American economy falls below one or one and a half percent uh, uh, annually then somehow we 're stagnating so there 's always been a preoccupation with the with the, uh, the the question of of growth in american society and you probably uh, may have noticed in newspapers a few weeks ago that sometime th- later this summer the United States population will reach the level of 300 million. Uh, Another example of the way in which we're concerned about the statistics of growth uh, in American society. So why would that be so uh, unusual or important as a theme for looking at the first half of the 19th century in in American history? Well, I think that um, the focus on growth then was Uh, Unusual in a couple of respects. First, the the scale of American growth during that period, the actual size of it, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment. And secondly, the intensity with which Americans made this question of growth almost a a religion. Uh, They equated it with progress. Uh, much more than we do today, because in fact, uh, of course, in the United States, United States today, there are all these concerns about, about growth. But in the 19th century, almost everybody regarded it as a good thing. And I want to talk about it in three dimensions and evaluate these dimensions, their meanings, their consequences. And the three dimensions are uh, population, economy, and territory. First, let me give you some general statistics, and then we'll look at each of these components in more detail. First, population. In the half century before the Civil War, that is from 1810 to 1860, the American population more than quadrupled. In fact, it was increasing at a rate that doubled the population every 23 years. Now, that might not mean much to you unless I point out that if the American population had continued to grow at that same rate since 1860 down to today, the uh, number of Americans today would be almost 2 billion, instead of the almost 300 million uh, that are now here. In the economy. In the 45 years before the Civil War, the gross gross national product doubled about every 15 years. Now, if that rate had continued down to today, the GNP of the United States would be eight or nine times what it actually is today. Territory, the size of the original territory of the United States doubled with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, and then doubled again from the 1810s to 1848, with the acquisition of Florida, Texas, Oregon Territory, and the previously Mexican Territory in what we now call the Southwest, including California. In other words, many Americans alive in the 1850s had seen the physical size of their country quadruple in their own lifetimes. And if that pace of growth had continued down to our own time, the United States today would cover every square mile of earth uh, in the world and then some. Now, some people may think that the current administration wants to do that, but that's another issue. Most Americans in, that gener- in those generations thought of these three kinds of growth in capital letters as a good thing. There were, of course, victims as well as beneficiaries of this growth. The most obvious victims of population and, of course, especially territorial growth were the uh, uh, American Indians, along with the Spaniards, the British, and the Mexicans who claimed the land that Americans acquired uh, during that period. Some of the other victims of this growth were less obvious, and I'll get back to that a little bit later. But for now, let's look a little bit more closely at these three different kinds of growth. Now, of course, these three were closely intertwined with each other. The gross national product would not have grown so fast if population had not also grown very fast. And population, the population would probably not have grown so much if there had not been all that new territory for it to grow into. But for purposes of analysis, let's look at each of them separately for a few minutes. First, population. At the time of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, the United States had about 6 million people, about the same population as Ireland at the time. It was an insignificant country on the periphery of the European or North Atlantic world. Thomas Jefferson thought that the Empire of Liberty, that's what he called it, that he had bought from France, the Louisiana Purchase, would be large enough to absorb, as he put it, a thousand generations of Americans, of of American population growth. But by 1850, two generations later, Americans were not only filling up that empire, but they were pushing on to a new one in California in the southwest. A few years into the 1850s, the United States passed Britain in population and the U.S. became the most populous nation in the Western world except Russia and France. During that half century, the United States' population grew four times faster than Europe's and six times the world average. Why? Well first and most important was a high birth rate. Uh, Second, a somewhat lower death rate, only slightly lower than Europe's, but significantly lower than the rest of the world. And third, immigration. All three of these were related to what historians and economists have often called an economy of abundance in North America. A temperate climate, a fertile soil, which produced a plentiful food supply and encouraged large families. Uh, less of that overcrowding that made epidemic diseases so deadly in many parts of the world, and large amounts of cheap land along with high wages that attracted immigrants from Europe, and late in the period also from China. During the half century before the Civil War, the birth rate uh, of, in America was about three times what it has been in, in our time. Uh, and that accounted for about three-quarters of American population growth, that is, the excess of births over deaths. And immigration accounted for the other one-quarter in population growth. Interestingly enough, although the antebellum birth rate was high by uh, modern standards, that is, um, the average woman had uh, six to seven children, then compared with about two today, the birth rate was actually beginning to decline in the first half of the 19th century, first in New England and in the more urbanized parts of the Northeast, and then gradually spreading to the Midwest and South by the 1850s. This modest decline in the American birth rate, that is, a decline of about 23% over the half century before the Civil War, had an important impact on American society and culture, and especially on women and was closely linked to certain social and economic changes going on during this period that also significantly affected women and families. Historically, as I suspect you are well aware, uh, decline in the birth rate has been associated with a rising standard of living and with the process of urbanization uh, in a society. And that was, of course, true in antebellum America. The standard of living was rising. The average per capita income of American families doubled from 1820 to 1860. And the proportion of Americans living in cities and towns more than tripled during that period. And this trend was even more marked in the Northeast, where the decline in the birth rate was greatest and where the change in the status of women was the most significant. Now these changes had two kinds of impact on women. Uh, One that has often been seen especially by feminist historians as a negative impact and the other uh, often more broadly seen as positive. First that negative impact, if that in fact was what it was. Back in the colonial period, 17th and 18th centuries, and well into the 19th century, for in many parts of the country as well, the family was a unit of production in the economy. That is, most such units were farms, where the women and children played an important role as producers, that is, helping to grow and process the things that the farm did produce, uh, most of them for home consumption. Since the farm was both a producing and a consuming unit, And since women and men both played an important part as producers and consumers, there was less distinction between what later came to be seen uh, as man the producer and woman the consumer uh, than we became familiar with uh, later in the 19th and into the 20th centuries. But in the 19th century, two important things began to happen to the American economy. First, it began to industrialize And second, the food-producing agricultural sector became more commercial and less self-sufficient. That is, farms produced a larger proportion of their crops to sell on the market rather than to process and consume at home. And both of these developments meant that production uh, in factories, in shops, in offices, even on the farm itself, moved increasingly outside the home. So the home became primarily a place of consumption rather than, as it had been earlier, a place of both consumption and production. The tasks of men and women in the family became increasingly divergent. The husband went away from home to work in the office, the factory on the railroad or wherever, or to take uh, the crops produced by the farm to the market, while the women stayed home to raise the children and run the household. And this gave rise to, in the 19th century, to a notion of what came to be called separate spheres for men and women. A notion that was probably reached the height of its of its um, power in the Victorian era of the mid 19th century. The man's sphere in this. Uh, concept of social organization was the bustling world of business, of politics, uh, of war, of events outside the home. A world that required strength, shrewdness, aggressiveness in order to succeed. But it also required a home to which the man could retreat to renew his strength. A home where he would find love, peace, warmth, gentleness in the bosom of his family. Home became to use a popular Victorian expression, a haven in a heartless world. And of course, it was the women's sphere to provide this warmth and love at home. So increasingly, as the 19th century went on, there developed concepts of masculine and feminine natures. The masculine being strong and dominant, the feminine loving and submissive. Now, for reasons that I'm sure are pretty obvious to you, for a long time many historians saw this as a negative development uh, from, the, from the standpoint of women's status. But in recent decades, so some historians at least, have begun to emphasize its positive aspects. Well, what were they? Mainly a cluster of women's roles and activities that historians, some historians, called domestic feminism. That is, if women's sphere was confined mainly to the home, at least she now ruled that sphere. The old patriarchal domination of the wife and the children by the father eroded as the father went out of the house every day to his sphere leaving the mother in charge of the nurturing, the socializing, the educating of the children. And as the family became less of a producing economic unit, it began to ripen into a locus of love and nurturance of children. Childhood emerged as a separate stage of life. I don't know if you've, you've probably all gone to an art museum and you've seen paintings from the colonial American period. Uh, in which children look like small adults, but by the ni- and increasingly in the 19th century, they began to look like kids, and childhood was emerging as a separate stage of life, which was something that hadn 't really been in the consciousness of people before. As the parents lavished more love on their children, they had fewer of them. Remember that gradually declining birth rate, which started in the 1820s and devoted more resources to their education by sending them to school in greater numbers for longer periods of time. Now of course most of what I've been saying here uh, about women and the family was taking place in upper and middle class families. Uh, but they are the ones who set the standard for society and in the women's magazines and the popular culture of the time this concept of s- domestic spheres and, and uh, the different natures of men and women, and the changes in the family and in childhood, that became the kind of cultural standard by the middle of the 19th century. And these, these developments, I think, helped to explain both the decline in the birth rate and the rise of the idea of universal public education, which is another dominant theme in the uh, first half of the 19th century. Both, again, of these important social developments started in the Northeast, they spread into the Midwest and the South by the middle of the century. Both had important implications, that is the decline of the birth rate and the rise of public education, the idea of universal public education. Both had important implications for women. Uh, The decision to have fewer children was, of course, a mutual one between husband and wife, but it was most often initiated by women and it required the sacrifice of some traditional male prerogatives. In those days, the principal means of contraception was sexual abstinence, and that put the main burden of restraint on males. And having fewer children meant that a middle-class woman or an upper-class woman in the 1850s was less continuously burdened by pregnancy, childbirth, and the nursing of children than her mother and her grandmother had been. And that freed women, at least middle- and upper-class women, for more activities outside the home. So, in in a kind of paradox, the notion that women's sphere was in the home became a foundation for extension of that sphere beyond the home. And here is where that matter of education came in. Something of interest to all of you, I'm sure. Uh, Women, of course, in this new concept of the family and the separate spheres, women were responsible for the training and the socializing of the children at home. But with the great expansion of education in the second quarter of the 19th century, that socializing and training process of children extended into the teenage years, and much of it began to take place outside the home in school. And what could be more natural than that women would become school teachers, Especially when you could get by with paying them less than men. Because women were, of course, seen to be the most qualified, in many respects, for this training and socializing process that we call education. Thus the antebellum years that brought the great expansion of public schools in the United States also brought the beginning of the feminization of the teaching profession, as historians have described it. By the 1850s, for example, nearly three-quarters of the school teachers in New England were women, and that process was also beginning to move to the West and the South. And of course, if women were to be teachers, they must themselves be better educated. In almost every society and time we know about, at least in Western societies, before the middle of the 19th century, men were better educated than women and had higher rates of literacy. The United States in 1860 was virtually the first society and time in which as many girls as boys went to school and in which literacy rate for the two sexes were about equal. Higher education, of course, college and, and beyond, uh, was still overwhelmingly a male domain. But a few women's seminaries and even colleges got started during this period, and Oberlin College in the 1830s became the first genuinely co-educational institution. I might just mention here in passing that uh, by 1860 the United States was one of the most literate societies in the world. Even counting the slaves, who were mostly illiterate, the United States had a higher literacy rate than any other country except Denmark and Sweden. And this created a large market for popular literature, and especially for newspapers. And in fact, the United States was preeminently a newspaper reading society and had by far the largest newspaper circulation per capita in the world. All of these things would have an important impact on the Civil War. The armies that fought that war were the most literate armies in history to that time. Civil War soldiers were probably better informed on what they were fighting for and about than any previous army in history. Ninety percent or more of the white Union soldiers were literate as were about 80% of Confederate soldiers. Newspapers were usually available in military camps and were widely read there and indeed exchanged across the lines in informal truces so each side could read the other side's of newspapers. And of course the principal leisure time activity of Civil War soldiers was writing letters home and reading letters from home. These letters were uncensored, and they offer us today a source of unparalleled richness on what these men, who, remember, at least the ones from the Northeast, had been mainly taught by women uh, what they thought and did and what they thought they were fighting for. Just a couple more points about the role of women before I get back to what should be my main story here um, on growth. I should note that women had a very active, played a very active role here in the printed media of the antebellum generation. Many women's magazines flourished during this period. Uh, Godie 's Ladies' Book is by far the best known one and the largest, I think. Uh, women were the main writers for them and sometimes editors. They were also the principal readers of novels and of short stories and also the main authors of this form of popular literature, which came into its own in the generation before the Civil War. Most of the best-selling fiction authors of that day were women, a source of um, resentment, uh, apparently, for Nathaniel Hawthorne, who once uh, described that damned mob of scribbling women. (laughs) Resentful because their royalties, I suppose, were higher than his. And this, of course, included the author of the best-selling and most influential novel, I suppose, of all time in American history, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Harriet Beecher Stowe's book had so much impact on the development of the slavery controversy in the 1850s that when Lincoln met her during the Civil War, he is reported to have said, more than half seriously, so you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. Finally, one other antebellum development connection with women women, uh, became important during the Civil War. The antebellum generation saw a huge expansion uh, of uh, voluntary associations in the United States. In fact, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was here in 1831 and then wrote the famous Democracy in America in the mid-1830s, commented on this uh, as one of the most distinctive features of the United States these voluntary associations for almost every purpose under the sun. Bible societies, missionary societies, literary societies, lyceum societies, charitable organizations, reform societies, temperance societies, anti-slavery societies, and on and on. Because of their increased access to education and their increased time for outside activities, having fewer children than their mothers and grandmothers, Women were prominent in many of these societies and dominated some of them. And at the, firma, at the famous uh, Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, women founded the world's first women's rights society to campaign for equal legal and political rights. All of this experience of organization and activism became significant during the Civil War when women did a great deal of the work in founding and running all kinds of soldiers' aid societies in both North and South, including the largest and most powerful voluntary association to that time, uh, the United States Sanitary Commission, which played a really important role in dealing with uh, the wounded here at Gettysburg after the great battle here. Well, uh, a few months ago I, I noted that the excess of births over deaths was responsible for about three quarters of American population growth during this period, and immigration for the other one quarter. But for a decade or so, from 1845 to 1855, immigration was equally important with natural increase, because just as that decline in the birth rate was beginning to become noticeable, there was a dramatic increase of immigration. In fact, the volume of immigration during that decade, 1845 to 1855, was the greatest in American history in proportion to the existing population. Not the greatest in absolute numbers, but in proportion. Well, what accounted for this sudden, dramatic increase of immigration? Well, as you probably tell your students in class there were two major factors in immigration, the so-called push factor and the pull factor. In this period the principal push factor was the potato famine in Ireland uh, and which spread to some degree into other parts of northern Europe and the continuing population increased pressure on a limited amount of land in small countries like the various German states, Scandinavia, and Ireland itself. Uh, which caused people to emigrate. And then the pull factors, the cheap, abundant land in the United States, a high demand for labor, and consequence, consequent high wages by European standards, especially in the era following the uh, Depression from 1839 to 1843, following the Panic of 1837, and then another Panic in 1839. And as the United States emerged from that Depression, uh, starting in 1843, there was a huge economic expansion and a huge demand for labor at the very time uh, that some of these economic uh, and agricultural problems were driving people out of Ireland and other parts of Europe. Now, we're familiar with the, with the tensions in the United States over immigration today. Uh, and that can help you to imagine uh, even greater tensions in this greater volume, proportionate volume of immigration during this period which did create severe social strains in the United States of the 18, late 1840s and 50s. I referred earlier to the matter of uh, the victims of growth in the United States during this period. Now it would not be quite accurate to say that either the immigrants or the native-born American citizens were victims of immigration because both, I think, benefited from that high volume of immigration. The immigrants benefited from higher wages, a higher standard of living, uh, greater opportunities than they had in the countries from which they had departed, and native or existing Americans from the labor and skills and sometimes the capital that immigrants brought with them. But I think we might say that the victim of the heavy immigration in this period was public tranquility. Immigration, believe me, much more than today, most definitely did bring a disturbance of the peace, an intensified level of ethnic conflict and violence that for a brief time seemed to threaten to tear American society apart. The source of this tension was twofold. Quantitative, uh, the coming of such a large number of immigrants in such a short time proved too much for the country to absorb smoothly. And secondly, what we might call qualitative, although I don't mean mean, uh, to have any pejorative implications to that. But as the number of immigrants increased after 1845, their social and cultural makeup also changed. Most of the much smaller number of immigrants coming before the mid-1840s had been Protestant farmers and skilled workers from Britain and Northern Ireland. Most of the much larger number of immigrants after 1845, down to the Civil War, were poor Irish Catholics and somewhat less poor German Catholics. Anti-Catholic and anti-Irish sentiments that always existed in the United States but they intensified sharply in consequence of the large immigration of these groups uh, from the 1840s uh, down to the eve of the Civil War. Nativism, that is anti-immigrant sentiment and movements, went into the streets and caused dozens of ethnic riots that killed scores of people in cities like Philadelphia, New York, Boston, uh, and so on, Baltimore, In the 1840s and 1850s, nativism went into politics in the form of the American Party, popularly called the Know-Nothings, which captured control of several state governments in the mid-1850s and threatened to become the second major party in national politics, replacing the Whig Party, which had been destroyed partly by the nativist movement. In fact, for two or three years in the mid-1850s, it even looked like if there was going to be a civil war in America, the fighting might occur between Protestants and Catholics, or between Natives and immigrants. Of course, that didn't happen. And in the later 1850s, the level of tension and Nativism sharply declined. Why? Well, the answer to that is, is complex, but we can suggest two principal reasons here. First, The volume of immigration dropped after 1855, giving American society a little bit of a breathing spell to try to absorb the new population. And second, and I think probably more important, was the other cause of the death of the Whig party. That is, the slavery issue. By the late 1850s, that question had emerged as the dominant and most divisive issue in the country and the newly founded anti-slavery Republican Party, rather than the anti-immigrant American Party, became the the second major party in American politics. In the end, of course, it was the slavery issue and not the immigration issue or nativism that precipitated a great civil war. Now this extreme divisiveness of the slavery issue was generated mainly by America's territorial growth but before we get to that question I want to discuss briefly that second component of growth during this period that I initially mentioned, uh, economic growth and change. I've already noted the doubling of the gross national product every 15 years from 1815 to 1860. And I've also noticed the per capita growth in the growth of national product which means that the the economy is growing faster than the population. Well, how did that happen? The United States experienced during those years two related developments that at least an earlier generation of historians have labeled revolutions. Although, I think now even though that term remains popular it is seen as being more evolutionary than revolutionary, but in any case these are the popular labels. First, the Industrial Revolution, uh, and which, of course, was not exclusively American by any means, and second, what is sometimes called the Transportation Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, or evolution if you want to call it that, began in England in the last quarter of the 18th century, came to the United States a generation or two later. What was it? Well, to oversimplify, it consisted of the application of power-driven machinery to the manufacture of items that had previously been made by hand or by small tools. started in the manufacture of consumer goods like textiles, furniture, eventually spread to larger capital goods like steam engines, farm machinery, and so on. This new way of, of manufacturing things, of making things, depended on technological innovations. Uh, and this was a great period in such innovations uh, with the spinning jenny, the power loom, the invention of other kinds of new machinery, machine tools, steam engines, and the like. This Industrial Revolution profoundly affected the American economy between the War of 1812 and the 18th Civil War. Before then, that is before the War of 1812, there had been relatively little economic change in North America for a century or more. The economy had been characterized basically by the export of raw materials and the import of manufactured goods, by a largely self-sufficient food-producing agriculture in the northern colonies and early states, and a staple producing agricultural, uh, agriculture for export in the southern colonies and early states. During that century, there had been little growth in the per capita product of the American economy or in the standard of living. That is, though North America had a relatively high standard of living compared to much of the rest of the world, that standard changed little over this century before 1815 and the overwhelmingly agricultural character of the population also changed relatively little. But then after 1815 came rapid, major change that brought the Industrial Revolution to the United States. Indeed, Americans carried it one step farther than the British. And by the 1850s, the United States had developed something that the British called the American System of Manufacturers. What was that? Well, put simply, it was the concept of interchangeable parts. For example, consider uh, a musket, and this is where it sort of got started. In the old system of making such a product, skilled craftsmen would fashion the parts or the whole thing, and no two guns would be exactly alike. If a part broke or wore out, it would have to be replaced by another handmade component. But beginning in the early 19th century, various American entrepreneurs and inventors, not just Eli Whitney, who is sometimes given exclusively credit for this, just as he is for the cotton gin, uh, but a a number of different inventors or entrepreneurs, began developing the concept of interchangeable parts and also began developing power-driven machine tools to make each part of a musket or a revolver or uh, other products. Um, eventually something like sewing machine for example, so that when complete each of the component parts would be just like every other part uh, of another musket of the same model, so that if a part was broken it could be readily replaced. And you can see why this would become important first in the arms industry. Uh, This was a much cheaper and more efficient uh, method of production. It was the origin of the modern mass production and assembly line uh, techniques, both of which began to appear in the American economy by the middle of the 19th century. Not only in the manufacture of firearms, but in the manufacture of many other products as well. Sewing machines as one example. This process Uh, the manufacture of products with interchangeable parts by power-driven machinery helped the United States become a major industrial country by 1860. Second only to Britain, and well on its way to surpassing Britain, and becoming the leading industrial country in the world by the 1880s, 20 years or so after the Civil War. And it was also a major factor in that doubling of American per capita income in the two generations before the war, the standard of living, that I referred to earlier. But that couldn't have happened without another revolution, the Transportation Revolution. In 1815, the end of the War of 1812, the means of transportation in the United States were pretty much the same as they had been for centuries. On land, animal-drawn wagons over ungraded, rutted dirt roads. At sea, sailing ships, and on rivers, flatboats that floated down with the current. But in the next two decades came three things that dramatically changed all of this. First, steamboats on the rivers, and eventually on salt water. Second, canals for cheap inland transport, starting, of course, with the Erie Canal. And third, and most important in the long run, the coming of the railroad starting in the 1830s. By 1860, the United States had more railroad mileage than the rest of the world combined. And everybody here knows, I think, how important that became during the Civil War, which could be called the First Railroad War. This transportation revolution radically lowered the cost and increased the speed of moving both goods and people. It made the Industrial Revolution in such a large country, physically large country, as the United States possible by providing a means of getting goods from producer to market, even distant markets, at a reasonable cost. And it also made possible a third important economic development and period, the commercialization of food producing agriculture or what we might, with only slight degree of ad- exaggeration, called an agriculture, call an agricultural revolution. Cheaper and more efficient transportation enabled farmers to ship crops longer distances to urban markets where there was increasing demand for them in the growing industrial and commercial cities whose people worked in shops, factories, and offices and couldn't grow their own food. And of course it changed the geographical distribution of agriculture. New England farms could no longer compete with cheap wheat and flour coming from Western New York State and eventually from the Midwest. So New England agriculture either had to change to uh, truck marketing, uh, truck farming uh, or the, the sons and daughters of farmers in New England had to find something else to do, go into the factories or go into uh, some other line of work. The antebellum period also brought major technological changes to agriculture, which enabled farmers to grow more than ever before with fewer, with less labor. New types of plows, harvesting machinery like the famous McCormick Reaper, uh, threshing machines, and so on. Most Americans thought that all of these remarkable economic developments and the growth that they generated were, again in capital letters, a good thing. But we might ask, were there are any victims of these changes, of this growth, this component of growth? And the answer is yes. The victims included first some skilled craftsmen whose skills were eroded or even eclipsed altogether by the new methods of organizing production. The skilled shoemaker, for example, uh, or the skilled tailor. Um, is now losing out to new ways to produce clothing and shoes, for example. And there was another dimension of the victimization of the old craft order, even if some of the old skills were still needed in the new methods of organizing production. The amount of capital needed to set up these new methods was beyond the means of most skilled workers, so their traditional hope of moving up from the status as an apprentice to a journeyman and then, for some at least, to that of a master craftsman who owned his own shop and tools, was disappearing for many workers. The industrializing economy of the United States was becoming increasingly divided between the entrepreneurs, some of whom had come out of the master craftsman class, but were open to new kinds of, to the changes uh, that were developing new ways of doing things, and these entrepreneurs were sometimes called capitalists or bosses and both of these words entered the American language in the 1820s. Capitalists and boss, who organized and owned the means of production on the one hand, and the workers who owned little or nothing but their labor power and who worked for wages rather than for a share of the proceeds from the sale of a product that they had made with their own hands. And this caused the rise of the concept of wage slavery, a phrase that you'll see much in the literature from that period, especially the second quarter of the 19th century, the middle part of the 19th century. The idea here was that the wage earner, who no longer was uh, was now dependent on somebody else for his living, is just as dependent on the boss who hired him and could fire him or cut his wages, as the chattel slave in the South was dependent on the master who owned him. And add to this the threat of unemployment in the depressions and recessions that an industrializing economy seemed prone to, like the depression from 1839 to 1843, or the recession of 1857-58, for example. Just as uh, the threat of unemployment Uh, and the real grinding poverty of the poorest class of unskilled workers or semi-skilled workers uh, in large cities like New York, and you have the combustible material for class conflict in this generation. Something new, really, in American society. And at times that combustible material threatened to catch fire Working men's political parties formed in the 1830s. Several radical leaders emerged to denounce the system of wages as wage slavery, even denounced in a few cases the concept of private property. There were several violent strikes, and during the recession winter of 1857 58, there were even bread riots in cities like in New York City and elsewhere. Some Americans in the late 1850s who had just gotten over their fear of an ethnic civil war between Protestants and Catholic immigrants wondered whether the country might suffer a class war between capital and labor. But in the end, that didn't happen either, at least not before the Civil War. Why? Well, because in spite of the grievances and the protests of some workers, in spite of their sense of being victims of the economic changes and growth in this era, most Americans, and that included most workers, I think, benefited from this process and approved of it. And despite pockets of poverty, pockets of imbalance and injustice in the economy, things were in fact getting better for most Americans. And the technological changes going on created more new kinds of of jobs, skilled jobs, like, for example, railroad engineers, steamboat pilot, telegrapher, uh, machinists of all kinds, created new kinds of skilled opportunities more than they destroyed the crafts, some older crafts like Shoemaker and so on. The new Republican Party in the 1850s called itself the party of free labor and managed to convince most Northerners that the real threat to American liberties was not capitalism and wage slavery, not immigration and the Pope, but the power and expansion of plantation slavery. The slave power. That became the dominant devil in the minds of people in the American North. And that brings us to the third component of growth, territorial expansion. In the end, that was the component that did bring on a civil war, because the, the basic issue that precipitated southern secession was the contest over the expansion of slavery into the territories. These territories, in a way that is hard for us to realize today, I think, represented for Americans of that generation the future, the future of America. The institutions that went into these vast regions west of the Mississippi would ultimately determine the institutions that would prevail in American society, or at least that's how Americans saw it in the 1850s. Would that future belong to slavery or to free labor? The United States could not continue to exist forever half-slave and half-free, Lincoln said in 1858. It must become all one thing or all the other. Which would it be? Today, of course, we tend to look back and see the eventual victory of free labor as inevitable, but that wasn't necessarily how Americans saw it then. Consider one maybe to you startling fact back in 1810 thomas jefferson had called the new territories uh, that he had acquired with the louisiana purchase an empire for liberty but by the time of the mexican war in 1850 in 1846 the territories acquired since the american revolution starting with the louisiana purchase in 1803 had added the five slave states of Louisiana, Missouri, Arkansas, Florida, and Texas to the Union, and parts of two others, southern Alabama and southern Mississippi, while only Iowa just admitted in 1846 had come in as a free state from any of those post-1783 territories. When the United States went to war against Mexico in 1846, Ralph Waldo Emerson predicted that we will conquer Mexico, but it will be as the man swallows the arsenic, which brings him down in turn. Mexico will poison us. And in a way, he was right. The controversy over whether the territories acquired from Mexico should or should not be open to slavery brought the country to the verge of dissolution in 1850 before it was temporarily settled by the Compromise of 1850, which admitted California as a free state uh, and left it up to the settlers in the territories of New Mexico and Utah whether or not to legalize slavery. As it happened, both territorial legislatures did legalize slavery, though few slaves were taken there. But that solution called, by Stephen Douglas, popular sovereignty, didn't really solve anything. It merely papered over the problem. That paper was torn away by the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, which reopened the slavery issue in an area where it had been supposedly settled by the earlier Missouri Compromise of 1820, in the Louisiana Purchase, of which the territories of Kansas and Nebraska were a part. Now, in 1854, under Southern pressure, Congress repealed that earlier prohibition on slavery in the Louisiana Purchase Territory north of 3630 and opened all the territories for popular sovereignty decision by settlers on whether or not they would have slavery in their territory. That produced a three-year civil war in Kansas between the anti-slavery and pro-slavery forces a conflict in which hundreds of people were killed, as a kind of prelude to the big civil war of the 1860s in which hundreds of thousands were killed. While that war in Kansas was going on, the Republican Party was born on a platform calling for Congress to exclude slavery from all territories. But a Southern dominated Supreme Court declared in the Dred Scott decision in 1857 that no authority had the power to keep slavery out of any territory. That polarized the country. In his 1858 Senate reelection campaign against Abraham Lincoln, Stephen Douglas's popular sovereignty was whiplashed between the two poles of, on the one hand, Lincoln's insistence on Congressional exclusion of slavery from the territories, and on the other, the insistence of Southern Democrats that Congress must pass a federal slave code to implement the Dred Scott decision to protect slavery in all the territories. Southerners split the Democratic Party on this issue in 1860 and formed their own separate party. This democratic split ensured Lincoln's election, and the South in turn used that election of what they called a black Republican abolitionist as justification for their secession. The South feared that the appointment by Lincoln of new Supreme Court justices would reconstitute the Supreme Court and secure a reversal of the Dred Scott decision and that Congress would then pass a law excluding slavery from the territories. Lincoln had said, in his House Divided Address of 1858, that such such exclusion from the territories would be the first step toward putting slavery in the course of ultimate extinction. Uh, Extinction of what a growing number of Northerners considered an obsolete and immoral institution. The South seceded because it believed that Lincoln meant just what he said. The Lincoln administration refused to recognize secession as legitimate or legal, and the war came. So America's territorial growth did have another victim besides Indians and the other claimants from which the land was taken, and that victim was peace. The United States might have been able to absorb territorial growth peacefully, as it eventually absorbed immigration and, and economic growth, might have been able to absorb that territorial growth peacefully if it had not been for the addition of the highly volatile slavery issue, which caused the territorial question and the nation to explode. And not until that divided country had a new birth of freedom, as Lincoln phrased it right here at Gettysburg, a mile south of here, uh, could it be reunited again. And I think that's a good segue into the readings that you did this time. I'm um, not quite sure how best to proceed, but maybe we could raise, have you raise questions either about what I said uh, just now here or the readings and then get involved in the dialogue. Yeah. Sort of class you all hear the questions? Uh, L- L- Lincoln was a, a, one of the foremost exponents for the free labor ideology and its uh, essential corollary of uh, social mobility. The man who starts out working for another one today as a wage laborer uh, tomorrow will become an independent entrepreneur, and the next day, Uh, would be able to hire workers for himself. How realistic was that? How accurate was it as a description of the actual economy? Well it was becoming less and less accurate uh, as time went on uh, as the growth of what became a a semi-permanent wage earning class was. Many unskilled laborers did not have that opportunity to move forward, but the st- studies of social mobility in mid-19th century America have shown that, in fact, it did exist. That opportunities to move up did exist. Uh, they, were, they were not as plentiful as they had been earlier. But the ideal was a dominant factor, I think, in American culture. The so-called American dream. The idea that no matter where you start out, uh, you can move up the ladder. Um, it was becoming less realistic. Lincoln could cite his own experience and the experience of many other people and he did in this same speech cite his own experience. I started out working for others, mauling fence rails um, as a wage earner. Uh, You know, I was born in a log cabin. I only had a year of schooling. My parents were illiterate, Uh, yet I was able to move ahead and almost any American boy born poor can move ahead. Uh, If they, you know, if they Put their nose to the grindstone and so on. Uh, that was more that was more accurate as a description of a, a cultural ideal than it was of a reality, and the reality was becoming less and less with the increasing industrialization and the growth in the wage-earning class. Um, but it was still the case in the 1850s that more Americans—this uh, is this is adult males, obviously. Own the means of production than were wage earners, or were dependent on, other, on others for the means of production. That's, of course, because even in the North, 40% of the people were still living on farms. And others were small entrepreneurs, small businessmen, uh, lawyers, um, so on. But by 1870, the census and thereafter, that was no longer true. Um, it was no longer true that most adult American males worked for themselves and owned the means of production. Now, a majority of them, and that majority is increasing as time went on, worked for somebody else. Uh, and of course, wage earning was becoming more and more acceptable. Uh, even, even in the 1850s, it was becoming more acceptable in Republican ideology because of this, this um, belief in social mobility that wage earning status is not permanent. You might start out as an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old working for somebody else, maybe even your father on the farm, but eventually you would move up as Lincoln moved up. And there was still enough reality in that, even though it wasn't universal, so that this had a broad appeal. (coughs) Yes.
2: Wyoming, um, I was I was taught that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. You know, in high school, um, did you do you see a regional uh, or you know how people teach that? Do you see that in regions like in the West that it's one thing and in the South? It's or is it just really dependent? I mean, I'm sure there are certain cases of teachers that kind of go against the grade, but I just wondered if you happen to see that and what your
1: opinion was on that. Anybody hear that question? Yeah, sure, there's a regional pattern this, and I'm sure that's true in the teaching of it, too. My acquaintance is mostly with the university and college situation, and I would think that um, with, the, with a few exceptions... Uh, the slavery issue is seen as the dominant factor in bringing on secession in southern universities and colleges just as much as it is at Princeton or at the University of Wyoming. But I suspect that in elementary and in high schools in the South, that's less prevalent than it is in Wyoming or New Jersey. So there still is, I think, some some regional pattern. There's, a, there's an interesting... Um, dichotomy, I guess, about that between what I would say is uh, scholarship uh, on the the causes of the Civil War or on the causes of sectional conflict in the 19th century where um, historians almost universally focus on the slavery issue as the prominent divisive issue uh, and, and popular culture. Uh, where that's much less prevalent and especially in, um, in the South among Southern whites. I don't think that's necessarily true among Southern blacks uh, but among Southern whites especially those who um, express a certain amount of pride in their Confederate heritage. And those those groups are, are very uh, well organized and articulate and, and uh, have a powerful presence on in some media, especially the Internet, I think.
2: Well, yeah, I was amazed to see the reactions to your article. Yeah? Uh, so.
1: I I was not amazed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure you were. I, I,
1: I was, uh, my reaction uh, was a word that also starts with AM, but it was not amazed. <laughs> I was
3: amazed that you responded to those people, back to those people. Uh,
1: I well, the editor invited me to respond. So I did, yeah. <laughs> There was a lot more to it, by the way, than you saw. I just, I just selected some of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Why did you about the Jones letter in that
4: response?
1: Well, it, that's partly a function of the selectivity. As I just suggested, I, I didn't uh, Xerox all of that to, for you because there was so much. Uh, but the Jones letter, I think. Uh, probably opened up more opportunity for ridicule than anything else, I suppose. I mean, he, it was a more egregious than some of the others. Well, some of you I know are from southern states. There's somebody here from every single state in the Union, isn't that right? Uh, maybe we ought to hear from, from some of them rather than <laughs> from Wyoming on this question.
2: Yeah, that maybe
1: should have been a question for the people. Well, I'd be curious to... Uh, uh, what the rest of you have to say about, especially those of you who are from the South, about the teaching of uh, the cause of the Civil War in Southern public or private schools, I don't know. I'm, only, I'm mostly familiar with the university situation. And you know, all of my friends who teach at institutions like Louisiana State University and the University of North Carolina and Georgia and so on would take the same position as I do on that. Um, but I know I, I know for sure that that's not universal across all levels of education in the South. So, be curious what what you have to say. Yeah. I'm
5: from Florida, but I moved there. I'm originally from Pennsylvania.
3: When I began teaching uh, middle school American history and talking to the older generation about the causes of the Civil War. Almost unanimously, the people there said it was over slavery. The whole issue was about slavery. It was never secession.
1: Yeah. I had a argue with you when I said it was slavery. I've studied
6: more than he has, so I ended that argument. pretty Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I don't. You know, I don't think it's exclusively in the South. That's right. That's perfectly true. Yeah. Yes.
7: Out. I'm so
6: say, nowadays, I think just
5: as kind of a product of using the same national textbooks that we all get from the books that are about counseling That, um, you know, that slavery is taught as the cause in general. But when Georgia history is taught in 8th grade, even now, I guess it's a little different because they have newer books, but, um, I mean, when I took that in the early '80s, we had basically a, a slightly updated edition, you know, of a much older book that was written by someone who would have gotten his college training in the 1920s or '30s, and so it was that you know the tariff was a big, a big issue then, um, and 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 I can remember, I mean, in elementary school, kind of in the '70s or early '80s. Uh, you know, being taught by people who have been educated mm-hmm. one or, you know, maybe a little, maybe one and a half generations earlier. And then, you know, states <coughs> the states so. right. Uh, on I'm from Fredericksburg, Virginia, and uh,
8: I have yet to meet the student that I really haven't been able to. I teach an advanced place in American history, history course. This year, for the very first time, I have a feeling I'm going to face a student that is, is, it wants perspective, a balanced perspective. In June, when I first met him, he said that, uh, from what perspective are you going to be teaching um, your section on, Ameri- on American Civil War? A northern perspective, or from the perspective that I would like to hear from you? So, uh,
4: <laughs> And I said, uh, just simply, uh, for lack of anything else to say, I
8: said, why don't we just stay tuned and why don't we see what kind of pr- perspective, and you figure out the perspective that I'm coming from. Um,
9: I don't know what I'm going to do with this particular point. Uh, it probably will be
8: a slightly northern or western perspective because I am not a native Virginian. But it is um, sometimes becoming more increasingly becoming a, an issue of perspective and balance
0: of perspective in the classroom. Yeah, if I could chime in here real, real quick. Uh, one of the reasons why we established, the Ashbrook Center established this kind of program uh, along with the master's program that they have at National University is precisely to help equip high school teachers uh, not to adopt perspectives per se, uh, but if you're interested in balance and fairness, et cetera, uh, is to equip you guys to show at least excerpts, if not in their totality, primary source documents <laughs> for your, your students, not just books like the, those by Charles Du, but the article by Charles Du, for example, uh, among other things. And, and article, you know, editorials in Southern Papers about why they feared Lincoln's election so much. They talk about slavery, but they also talk about the you know, violation of the National Covenant, uh, what's going on in the states in terms of personal liberty laws, etc., and to let your students Weigh and sift the material like historians have to do. Uh, so that's why, for example, we don't emphasize a lot of secondary source texts. Uh, but to get you guys familiar with, even steeped in primary source documents that are, by the way, much more interesting, in my opinion, and engaging for your students than most textbooks, I would argue.
1: Yeah, I'm back there, green hat, green head
10: for us to present the material in such a way where they can make their own opinions. I mean, at the high school level, at least I think part of my job is to create an American citizen. And that American citizen needs to have his or her own opinions. And the only way they can do that is if you give them the skills to be able to read and decipher. And I don't necessarily think that anybody is ever going to solve the question of whether it was states' rights or slavery and our economics or not. I think all of those are interchangeable. You know, slavery has an economic twist. And I certainly think that we had still not solved the federalist and anti-federalist argument either. So you do have the, the states, myself, Mississippi, who felt like you know the government shouldn't be telling me or our state what we can and cannot do. So I think all of those elements are there. And I don't think that there's one single issue that caused the Civil War. At least I hope that there wouldn't be one single problem that would result in such a devastating event in our history.
6: Well, uh, I, I am from Tennessee right now, but I was born and raised in Mississippi, and I think I'm actually a fairly decent representative of my school system and that I was not taught in high school that, you know, oh, don't call it the Civil War, call it the War of Northern Aggression or anything like that. I never, I never even heard that until I went to do my student teaching. And there was one teacher and he happened to be like the uh, charter member of our local section of the Sons of Confederate veterans. And of course, so he called it the War of Northern Aggression. But, you know, most of us were taught to think for ourselves and and make our own decisions. And that's what I tried to Teach my children to do in Memphis because most of them actually believe Martin Luther King freed the slaves. So we're kind of working on that. And then
9: they <laughs> to the uh, reasons of the Civil War, but I, I tell them, I'm like, what you guys have to do
6: is exactly what they've been saying. You have to be able to see an argument for its state's value. If they're saying it states rights, look at who's saying it, look at what their background is, and you decide. If they are making a cover argument for something deeper that they're trying to hide or that's really what it's about. I'm trying to make them just kind of, you know, in the age of the internet when you have to really figure out what somebody's priorities are and what their agenda is. I'm like, what's this guy's agenda? Do you think that he's really concerned about taxes? Do you think he's really concerned about states' rights or is it about somebody telling him he can't have the slaves anymore? Uh, I grew up in Illinois, but I teach in North
3: Carolina, which even though it likes to regard itself as a good Carolina, so.
6: After I've given my students, and they've read the South Carolina Ordinance of Secession and the Cornerstone speech and some of um, um excerpts, and I said, okay, so what do you guys think causes the the war? I still have kids who say, "Well, I don't think it was slavery," and they sort of suspect that I, because I'm this Lincoln lover from Illinois, that I'm just hiding from them, you know, the, the documents that would prove what their granddaddy taught them. So I mean, even in a more urban North Carolina, I'm still getting those kids, and they're learning it. Some of them are learning it at home, and some from their middle school teachers. I'm, well,
3: I'm from Indiana, but my wife's from the South. Um, birth through 7th grade was in Memphis, and she was, in this in the early 60s, she was strictly taught the war of Northern aggression. And she said, it. and then she would move to Florida, and the rest of junior high and high school in Florida, where she witnessed frequent chain and knife fights between the black and white students within the school itself on a daily basis during the throes of immigration.
1: So, So there must be more to the story than that. (laughs) Where does she stand now on this issue, or doesn't, I mean, isn't that a salient concern? her? she's a
3: reasonably liberal-minded person, she's a good Democrat. (laughs) No such thing. (laughs) South, to the perspective that the South was wrong in, in the political stance they took, but she still bristles. If you get into a real discussion where you really push her to
5: any degree, I mean, she's just, you know, it's in her race. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will say that, I mean, even if you, uh, I mean, I can understand that feeling, so even if you understand slavery is an enormous cause of the Civil War, it's still hard to celebrate. Uh, you know, Sherman's March to
9: the Sea, or burning exactly. Atlanta, or you know, things
1: like that. The yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was interested in something you said just now. When you when when you get into a real argument, and, and and your wife may bristle if there's a question to push blame. Why is it necessarily the case if one argues that it was slavery that that um, polarized the country in the eighteen fifties? Is that pushing blame? Why is that pushing sure, blame?
3: I'm not sure I worded that, you know, it
1: really. In well, no, you, you did word it the way many people think but, of it. But when That's we, why no, I picked that one. But
3: when we have discussion, she bristles, no matter how carefully I try to word things so that they're not, you know, pointing, finger, and pushing. She just, ought, she tightens up whenever we talk about it just because she's, she wants to defend her homeland even though she would personally say that most that many of the decisions that they made were decisions that they shouldn't have made.
1: Well, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get at is that uh, the concept of pushing blame, I think, is is at the root of all of this, right. um, and and that 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 is a I think is is a leads to a fairly important insight. And that is that we no longer regard slavery as a good thing. But most of the white people living in the South, and for that matter, a lot in the North, in 1860, didn't regard slavery as wrong. Uh, In fact, the dominant theme in Southern ideology and Southern whites, and you saw it in Calhoun, in the reading, um, slavery was a positive good. Or of course, um, alexander Steven 's famous cornerstone speech, um, so what has changed I think and 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 uh, creates the, the the concept of pushing blame is that we don 't regard slavery as a good thing anymore, but i think I, I I think in the article I quoted not only Stevens but also Jefferson Davis and how, in eighteen sixty one their whole uh, mindset is that. Slavery is is a form of property that's protected by the Constitution and by a Supreme Court decision. It was legal in all the territories, um, and it was it was, a, was an essential part of Southern culture. And you know, there's no argument. It's from their some point of view, there's the reason they seceded was to protect slavery from what they saw as a threat. Uh, there's no blame attached to that. But you know, ten years later or twenty years later, when they're writing about the causes of the Civil War slavery is now no longer a positive good in the eyes of American culture and indeed in the eyes of many white Southerners. So now the question of uh, of slavery's relationship to the war changes because people have a negative view of slavery when many people did not have a negative view of slavery in 1860. I think that is the key factor in this. Hardly anybody would have debated least of all Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens in 1860, that this was primarily about uh, the institution of slavery, which was constitutionally protected, an essential part of the Southern economy, um, an essential part of the Southern social order, and it's being threatened by these outsiders who don't understand and don't have any right to interfere or threaten with it. And there there would have been no blame in terms of of, um, their concept of it. The blame part of it is something that developed subsequently because slavery, our perception of slavery changed by 100, I mean, a lot of people's perception of slavery changed by 180 degrees. Yeah?
11: Isn't that a conflict between one group seeing it as a moral issue and the other group seeing it as an economic issue? And once the war is over and the winning side is decided, then the moral issue becomes the primary issue because it's no longer an economic issue, so therefore the South must have been bad because they were owning these people, and that's morally wrong. Yeah, and I think that becomes the predominant view.
1: Yeah, I think that's basically right. Yeah.
2: Well, and one thing that changed for me was it was in addition to the moral issue and the economic issue, was the issue of the race difference. You know that and that's probably part of a moral moral issue, but it's not just slavery is wrong, but that black people, the thought of them the, of being inferior, and that the southern whites could not have that. See, I never was taught that. I just it was just the moral issue or the economic issue, and that was something I never really understood. In fact, you know, quite honestly, that you know, Dew pointed out really well with all of those letters is that it was a threat to their know their whole society and those race relations and that's what you know hopefully I can convey to students
1: better than I ever Mm -hmm. Mm learned. Yeah slavery was economic Uh, it was a racial issue it was a social an issue having to do with um, social organization and and, um, the stability of a society I mean it's a very complex issue it often gets simplified um, because it's easier to think in terms of, of um, right and wrong and simple issues. And I think that did, as you suggest back there, it did become the situation at, after the war was over. And it leads to, you know, I, I can understand why um, people today whose ancestors fought for the Confederacy would bristle when it becomes a question of morality versus immorality. Uh, which, of course, the abolitionists saw it all along in the North, but they were a tiny minority, and now that point of view has become an overwhelming majority point of view. Yeah. I hope you
9: can answer this question for me that I've been trying to wrestle with for a long, long time, and that is, why wasn't there some successful effort over a period of time between 1787 and 1860 that would provide for gradual emancipation and re- recompense uh, for the recompense the slave owners for their property, so that they could manument their slaves. Um, much the way I think that people who grow tobacco in, in North Carolina, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and Virginia should be growing hemp or something else instead. (laughs) Now, not for the reasons you think. (laughs) (laughs) To make paper and uh, oil and certain other things. But anyway, uh, I think that if they had been able to push that through and done that over a period of 30 or 40 years, maybe we could have avoided the Civil War.
1: You hear, that you hear that question? Well, before I try to answer it, maybe uh, just open it up for other people to comment on that. Anybody? Yeah.
10: Uh, pretty much. Therefore, uh, most of that time period, the South controlled Congress, the presidency, Supreme Court, and a lot of
6: Southerners are not going to shoot out other Southerners. <laughs> yeah.
5: Oh, did you? I don't know if you heard that. Okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think where you had. Emancipation in the north and the beginning, you know, strong beginnings of the border states, it's where slavery is on the decline anyway, with, with the development of the free labor economy the slave labor economy is in decline. But all those decades leading up to the Civil War, you had the opening of the Southwest in Alabama and Mississippi and on to Texas and Arkansas. And so that was a growing and vibrant slave labor economy. So it's just, you know, not good ground for getting rid of that system.
1: The um, congressional delegation from Ohio in 1824 um, proposed in Congress a program just as you described it, compensated emancipation, uh, coupled, uh, uh, gradualism, and so on, and the, the southern states squashed it. Had nothing wanted nothing to do with it. And even as late as 1862, Lincoln proposed to the border states, Kentucky, Delaware, Missouri, um, and, and um, Maryland, a program of federally compensated um, emancipation for their slaves and told them bluntly, look, this is the best offer you're going to get because if this war goes on much longer, slavery is going to be ground under the, under the um, friction, friction abrasion. Those are the phrases that Lincoln used. And the congressman from the border states in July 1862, when the handwriting is already on the wall about what's likely to happen if this, to slavery if this war goes on, voted 2 to 1 against accepting federal compensation. Now, this is not Mississippi and South Carolina, where slavery is, you know, where there's a majority of the population are slaves and slavery is prof- prof- profitable. This is Kentucky and Maryland and Delaware, where sla- in Delaware, slavery has virtually disappeared. Uh, Delaware refuses to amans- to, abol- to ratify the 13th Amendment, even though, you know. Slavery's gone, and there are only 2,000 yeah. slaves in Delaware. You're from Delaware, <laughs> yep. you know that.
7: Delaware just like to be stubborn. Okay. I, think it, I, I really think it was just their way of probably making so a point. Yeah. It was a principle that they, yeah.
11: they wanted to. But I mean, the,
1: the, 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 the larger point about this is that there were proposals for compensated right. emancipation, and the people who would have been paid for freeing their slaves had wanted nothing to do with it for, you know, profitability of slavery in the cotton kingdom of the Southwest because they feared the racial consequences of it, because they didn't like anybody else telling them what to do. Of course, that's how slavery was abolished in the British colonies, compensation. But that's because the slave-holding population had no representation in the British Parliament and the United States Congress, as somebody in the back row pointed out, um, they they were powerful uh, in the United States government. Yeah, way back there.
4: You argue that Northerners, and I'm going to try not to make anybody ticked like off. Could you say the Northerners dealt with change more objectively or effectively than Southerners did? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm sorry, you know, I'm thinking with what you were saying earlier with uh, industrialization, with immigration, with uh, changing roles of women. You had all these things that were were happening in the North more quickly. Than in the south, and so you had this regionalization where, you know, again talking about um, you know, the differences in the philosophical backgrounds. In the north, you know, maybe it was a little bit more of an opportunity to say, okay, we can add these things incrementally, or these changes incrementally. Where in the south, it's like, no, it's moving too fast for us. We don't.
1: Well, I think as a, well, we'll get to Mississippi to respond to this. Yes, okay.
10: Just comparing removing slavery to industrialization, that's kind of, I mean, you can be more open and objective to building some factories that are obviously going to help the economy rather than removing the basis of the economy. Those are not changes that result, I mean, require the same response or
0: acceptance well you
1: know on a a kind of narrow uh, part of your uh, of your question of the premise of your question there were a lot of advocates within the South for um, a diversification of the economy through investment in textile mills for example why should we grow all this cotton and send it to Massachusetts to be ma- or to Liverpool to be manufactured into cloth? Why don't we bring the spindles to the cotton fields? There were Southerners who said that. And, and most, most modern historians and economists who have studied this say the reason that there wasn't more investment in economic diversification, industrialization, in the antebellum South is because Slave grown staple products were so profitable. They were more profitable than alternative investments. You've got, I mean, you've got New England. Stony soil, worn out soil, can't compete with agricultural products coming in from western New York State, Ohio, you know, Minnesota, and so on. So they invest in textile mills and factories and railroads. And so on, because those are profitable investments. But in Mississippi, your greatest profit, if you have money, is going to be in plantation agriculture and in slaves. Or if you live in Virginia or North Carolina and own slaves, selling those slaves to the rich cotton fields in Mississippi and Arkansas is, a, is you know, you're getting more money from that from, than you are from investing in textile mills. So that's, that's just a narrow slice of your question. But that's part of the answer, yeah.
4: I happen to be from the great Northeast, but I did live in the, one the state of South Carolina. And uh, if you drive through the Northeast today, you could argue that the industrial balance has shifted to the south Southwest, and that exactly what you're talking about has happened. It just took 120 years yeah. to do it. Yeah. I'll show you the rust belt. Sure. As we got it. Yeah.
1: No, that's that's perfectly true. Or upstate New York, which uh, was the kind of cutting edge of um, economic development in the Erie Canal days, is now a depressed area. Now, I think that, that's that's part of the answer to the question. Yeah. Well,
3: just to, to go back to the question itself, how well did the uh, nativists adjust to the influx of immigrants? They didn't adjust well to that at all. Well, I think they complained about it.
4: But I don't think they had a choice. I think they complained about it, but I don't think they had a choice. It was coming <laughs> <laughs> <in Canada. coughs>
3: Reacting—that's right. a pretty strong
1: reaction. Well, there were certainly social tensions over immigration, as there were—I mean, later in the 19th century over um, industrialization and great labor strikes and riots and so on. But in the end, they didn't lead to a civil war. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of scale of intensity here that's going on. Yeah.
11: To me, it comes down to a social diversity issue. In the North, you have a very broad ethnic base. There's a big mixture, or melting pot, if you want to call it that, because of the immigration going to that Section 2 work in the factory. And so your conflict, your social conflict in the North is between nativists and immigrants. It's not between, like in the South, between colors of skin. It's I mean, between I mean, how long you've been in the country and the I mean, once North, your
3: dialect's the same, you can't tell them apart. Whereas by looking at them, you can still tell them apart.
11: But in the South, it's not a, well, you have a chance to educate yourself in the North if you're an immigrant and to rise back the American dream. And that you can become a Native over time. In the South, your race funds don't have a choice. The success of one depends upon the oppression of the other. So it's not going to be the same thing because it's a race difference rather than an economic or social standing issue in the North.
9: I don't know if Do you want to talk more about this. or not. Go, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> if you could talk a little bit maybe about some of the uh, or unravel some of the thinking pro and con about the constitutionality of secession. Like whether I mean no one wants to defend it on the basis of defending slavery but just like if you set that issue aside for a minute and just kind of talk about you know do, do states have that right um, you
1: know do you talk a little bit about that? The question is uh, constitutionality of secession. Uh, the Supreme Court before the Civil War never ruled on that issue. The Constitution itself is silent on the issue. The Kentucky and Virginia resolutions in 1798, 1799 come close to asserting superior state sovereignty over uh, national sovereignty. Uh, Interestingly enough, James Madison, who was the only framer of the Constitution still alive in 1832 and 1833 when South Carolina, under John C. Calhoun's influence, asserts the right, the superior sovereignty of a state to and can nullify a national law, which is one step short, I think, of talking about the legality of secession, now repudiates that idea Madison in 1833. for, For whatever reasons he's changed his mind on that question. Uh, The only time the Supreme Court ever ruled on the constitutionality of secession was in 1870 in a case called Texas versus White, which had to do with whether bonds issued by the state of Texas when it was a Confederate state, um, whether they were legitimate bonds and must be the responsibility of the state to repay, and the United States Supreme Court said no because secession was illegitimate, these bonds are illegitimate. But of course, that was a court in which Abraham Lincoln had appointed most of the justices. So what else were they going to rule? There's no, um, the argument in 1860 and 1861 was partly about the Constitution. Um, The people who advocated the right of secession said the Constitution was a compact among sovereign states in 1787 who had delegated some of the functions of that sovereignty to a national government. Uh, you know, the, the, the right to um, carry on foreign relations, the right to regulate interstate commerce, uh, the power to, uh, to uh, declare war, and certain other manifestations of national sovereignty that the states delegated to a national government but that they did not delegate the fundamental sovereignty which retained, which remained in the states. And having delegated that, these functions of sovereignty to a national government in the form of a state convention that ratified the Constitution, they could withdraw that ratification, which they did in 1861. The secession conventions basically reversed the ratification of the United States Constitution that they had, that an earlier convention that their grandparents, their grandfathers, had done in 1787 1788, and reaffirmed their sovereignty, so that South Carolina, the first state to secede, was now the sovereign state of South Carolina and didn't become part of the Confederate states of America until two months after it had seceded, and so on. Uh, So that was the so-called compact theory of the Constitution. Those who opposed that said, the preamble of the Constitution says, the people of the United States do hereby. That the fundamental sovereignty that created the national government resided in the people, not in the states. And that the United States was a nation before it was a conglomeration of separate states. Lincoln was actually pretty articulate about this in his first message to Congress, no, or was it in his inaugural address? Okay. A, if, yeah. In which he said, uh, you know, the states never had uh, an independent existence outside of the United States as independent sovereign states. They were colonies, and they came together in the Continental Congress to form the United States. They didn't become states until there was a United States but in 17- 1770.
3: So- What's that? Much disagreed with that? I've been carrying the I'm sorry, what? The Founding Fathers totally disagreed with that. The Founding Fathers said they were sovereign states, and I left for the first time since we had that book. I left it in the room.
1: Okay, well, I'm, I'm talking about the argument, yeah.
3: But, but the Founding Fathers said that was bogus, basically, by the statements that they did make. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't still alive, they couldn't say that's bogus, right. yeah. But their former statements very clearly indicate that they felt like they were sovereign states
1: sure uh, they 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 formed the articles of confederation which so basically
3: the founders that wrote it or Lincoln? Like
1: well uh, n- 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 nobody has ever uh, declared you know the, if if the if the ultimate arbiter uh, of the united of, of the meaning of the constitution the supreme court before 1861 never ruled on this <laughs> Uh, I'm just I'm just talking about what the constitutional arguments were in 1860 and 1861. What what the, the the I I think the constitutional arguments, pro and con, were more window dressing or not so much window dressing as rationalizations for what they were doing and what they were opposing. In the case of in the case of of Lincoln in the North, I think that the bottom line here was the fear of the precedent of secession would make the United States, um, or those two words, United States an oxymoron. That there would be no nation, there would be no United States, if any state or any group of states at any time could secede from the United States. Um, And uh, I'm not sure (coughs) that the founders ever addressed the question in quite the way you suggested it did. But I think the fundamental thing was, uh, it was an argument about the about the nature of of the nation. Do you have a nation if at any time anybody can pull out of it? Um, and you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of power to that question. Because if one state, seven states, or 11 states can secede, so can anybody else at any time. Uh, if they don't like, if they lose a presidential election, the, the blue states could secede from the red states. A lot of them actually wanted to do that, or at least <laughs> talked about it uh, after the 2000 election. Um, uh, and, but you know it, it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because that issue was settled in 1865. I think the bottom line is that this question was settled not by the Supreme Court and not by political arguments or legal arguments about the nature of the Constitution, but it was settled by war. Nobody has tried to secede since 1865.
8: They haven't. The of Montana tried. Well...
1: No serious (laughs) political entity has tried to secede since 1865, and you know. So I, I don't know. That doesn't necessarily answer your question, but I think the the fundamental answer to it is that there's no way to decide this by constitutional arguments. I think it was decided by facts of history rather than by constitutional
9: arguments. so we've been talking a lot about things between like political rights versus natural rights. It seems like Lincoln. We were talking last night that Lincoln made a big appeal to natural rights. Did, did Southerners do that as well? That like whether it's in the Constitution or not, it doesn't matter. If, um, if people, if government is abusing you, you have the right to revolution.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Making appeals to natural rights. They certainly did make the question is uh, um, did Southerners make an appeal to natural rights as uh, uh, as an argument for secession? Yes, some of them did. Um, I think they relied primarily on their constitutional right, which they this compact theory of the Constitution, but they would fall back on the right of revolution, uh, which is a natural right based on the Declaration of Independence. People have a right to change their form of government if it becomes oppressive. So yes, they did appeal to that particular natural right. Now, they, they, would, they would quote that part of the Declaration of Independence, but not necessarily the part that said all men are created equal, with an equal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, because that seemed to go against the institution of slavery, and in fact, was the fundamental text cited by anti-slavery people in the North that the great meaning of the Declaration of Independence and the great, the greatest natural right is the right to freedom? So that particular natural rights argument was a northern, or an anti, I shouldn't say so much northern, it was an anti-slavery argument, um, and and not not so much a, a natural rights argument that was in, uh, advocated by the South. They would. Uh, fall back on the right of revolution, the right of self-government, the right of a people to change their form of government if they feel it's become oppressive. And they did advocate that uh, in 1861. Yeah, I saw another, somebody else. Yeah. I was going back to an earlier point.
8: We uh, were talking about whether or not people can succeed, succeed from the Union, and I think we talk about these founding documents, we often forget about the Articles of Confederation. That's not the title of the document. The title of the document is the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Yeah. The word perpetual has a very specific meaning at that point in time in this common usage. And even when you read the papers of the Anti-Federalists, they talk about this whole nation, not about colonies associated together. And. And it was clearly understood that secession was not possible under the Constitution or the Articles or even as a result of the Declaration of Independence and that's where Lincoln, drawing particularly on the Declaration of Independence, was unwilling to recognize Southern Secession.
3: Well,
1: I think you, you bring up a good point. The Articles of Confederation did say that the the union created by these articles shall be perpetual. And the preamble to the Constitution said, in order to form a more perfect union. Now, I've never quite understood what could be more perfect than perpetual, but it, it does sound pretty uh, pretty strong. And, and again, Lincoln, Lincoln would cite cite this, these documents from the founders, too. And,
8: and it was very common usage. I mean, we've been joking this week about uh, Schoolhouse Rock on television. For those of us who are old cool, to remember, it doesn't mean anything. But those who do remember it, it's a powerful thing that is common understanding shared nationally by people of that generation. And I think the same thing applied to the founders. This union was forever.
1: Well, there's, a, there's another, um, again, this is the Lincoln point of view about it. Not only um, the oxymoron of the United States, if any states could leave at any time, but the whole uh, ideal of, um, of, of a republic uh, based on free suffrage, at least for adult white males. Uh, at a time in the middle of the 19th century when there were very few functioning republics in the world. Uh, the United States and Switzerland, which by the way had its own civil war in 1847-48 that led to the modern nation of Switzerland, uh, and Latin American countries were republics, but they, you know, they their governments were notoriously unstable and, and um, changed almost monthly in some, in some states. Uh, and the whole idea of a democratic republic would be destroyed if, at any time, it could could uh, disintegrate. That was a dominant feeling on the part not only of just of Lincoln, but that um, Buchanan's. I don't know if any of you have read Buchanan's final message to Congress as he as his presidency was expiring in December of 1860, and secession was already beginning. Um, he made the same point that this would discredit the whole idea of um, on which the United States was based, that and and would play into the hands of European uh, monarchs and aristocrats who had said for generations that this upstart republic across the Atlantic would never survive. That I think was a fundamental northern concern as well. Of course, the southerners <laughs> turned that on its side, on, on it turned it upside down, and said, "We are manifesting." By forming this new government, our right of self-government to form a functioning uh, republic. So there was disagreement on that that part of it too as well.
5: Could, could you say something about the abolitionists and their their feelings about secession? Especially, I mean, I don't know how true this is, but I just heard that at the time of Texas annexation, that some abolitionists thought that was enough to break the compact between the states. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is a garrisonian wing of the abolitionist movement. William Lloyd Garrison, Wendell Phillips, and the others, mostly concentrated in New England and New York, um, were disunionists uh, in the 1840s and 1850s in the sense that they regarded the Constitution as a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. Uh, And they advocated secession of the northern states Uh, which, of course, didn't carry a whole lot of weight with the political leadership there. But once the southern states seceded in uh, early 1861, most of the Garrisonians became strong Unionists because they said, well, death and hell have seceded. So now uh, they, they in effect, welcomed the war because they saw that it would end slavery, or they hoped that it would end slavery, and they advocated it that this become an anti-slavery war and not just a war to restore the old union. So they flip-flopped on this issue. Um, For years they had advocated the secession of the free states from the slave states. And now when when the opposite happened, they saw an opportunity through the cause of union to bring an end to slavery. So their disunionism like I suppose that of the, of the, of the actual seceders in southern states was an instrumental disunionism. They hoped that it would accomplish a certain end. And when the end could now be accomplished through other means, they, they changed their disunionist philosophy. Yeah. I'll seek uh, a question off the track
4: here. You've seen a lot of college students come and go, you've taught a lot of them, you've taught a lot of graduate students. What's the, what's the best piece of advice you can give a high school or middle school teacher on what you think they need to do to get students ready to enter your classroom or classrooms in general across the broad scope of post-secondary education?) <laughs>
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, well, from, from talking to a lot of undergraduates over the years about the difference between their college experience, or the college classroom experience at any rate, and their high school classroom experience, is that they need to be prepared to do a lot more reading, study, independent thinking and, and work than they ever thought they would in high school, although I've had students who'd had advanced placement in high school where they've already had some of that and I think they tend to be better prepared for the, the more intense level of, um, of study, really, uh, of, of, of reading and of independent uh, writing papers and so on. I suppose maybe writing is the, is the hardest thing that a lot of college students who haven't had that much experience in writing in high school uh, f- find that they have to learn to do. So experience in, in writing and uh, the ability to read large amounts and absorb that information and think <coughs> independently about it uh, is probably the, the greatest or the sharpest transition from high school to college. Um, so maybe that's what they need to be <coughs> about, advised about, or prepared to to um, to undertake when they get to college. That might be different from the high school experience. I don't know. I I, I don't I don't feel like I'm any expert in, on that issue. Um, but that's one thing that occurs to me just from talking to students about the difference between high school and college. Let's
0: do one more question and then we mm-hmm. to close out. But I find fascinating
3: too, like to put it all in international context, that in these very same secession decades, so to speak, that in the German states, sort of like the reverse is happening. That Otto von Bismarck is this forging,
5: breaking the power of 39 states, fiercely independent, very proud of being Bavarians or Hessians
3: or Hanoverians, and he's creating this national umbrella government in Berlin. and here People are struggling to hold on to it. So, is there any? Was there any observation? I'm, fi- I'm finding myself asking now: Was Lincoln aware of how in Europe, in, in Italian states as well? Italian states as yeah. well.
1: Well, uh, I don't know. You all hear the question. Um, at, the, at the same time, the United States was facing the threat of breaking up a single nation, Germany and Italy, but especially Germany, were unifying several independent states into one nation. Um, Lincoln was not that much of a student of international politics, but he certainly was aware of some of these processes. I think Americans in, in the late 1850s and early 1860s were paying more attention to the Italian uh, consolidation than they were to the Germans. Uh, the Germany was, of course, a slightly later development in the later 1860s and then culminating in 1870 with the Franco-Prussian War. There was a lot of attention paid to Garibaldi, for example. Um, uh, and, in fact, Lincoln... It wasn't Lincoln, but Seward, Secretary of State, even offered Garibaldi a commission in the Union Army. Um, Garibaldi made some conditions about it and it it never worked out. Uh, But there was a lot of awareness of what was going on there. The the interesting thing is that the process of unification in all three societies, Germany, Italy, and the United States, in some ways was, was made possible by a war. I mean, just as in the case of, of the United States, it was the Civil War that really created the nation um, after the failure of the effort to divide the nation. And it was really a series of wars, and then the uh, in both Italy and Germany, the um, Austro-Prussian War in 1866, and then of course the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 that consolidated these 39, different German entities into one nation. So if there's a generalization here, it is that nations are created by war more than anything else.